Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. My guest this week, Walker Brandt, is a model, actress, producer, and international best-selling author. As a young adult, she signed with Elite Model Management and began modeling in Milan. She has had roles in movies and TV shows like City Slickers, Dante's Peak, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Beverly Hills 90210. In 2019, she released a book called Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. Walker has accomplished things that a lot of people dream about, but her life has not been without its share of struggles. Some of her childhood memories include violence and substance abuse, and she became an emancipated minor at the age of 16. Walker, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start in the beginning. Where were you born and raised, and what do you remember about being a young child? Mm. I was born and raised in Santa Barbara, California, which is, you know, it's a little bit north of Los Angeles. It was a small, sort of small town vibe. Um, A lot of people there were there for generations. The thing I remember the the most about my childhood is engaging with nature. I always, always just put me out in nature and my mom tried to get us to take, you know, lessons for, you know, the kid things. And I was, I just always went off on my own. I was one of those, I was just a natural explorer. And because it's on the beach and uh, close, you know, proximity to all manner of creatures that inspire the imagination. And that's kind of what I, when I was really young, that's where I spent a lot of the time. It was free. We didn't have a lot of money. So my mom brought us to the beach, you know, it's like great free entertainment for kids and uh, let that exhaust them. I imagine that's what she was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, then we moved up into the mountains of Santa Barbara in this little community called Painted Cave. And it was its own private community uh, filled with such a diverse group of people and being immersed in that nature was so different than the beach. There's this, you know, expansive experience at the beach. You know, I mean, it's like the ocean is this magnificent and, and uh, exciting in, a, in its own very unique way. And then we moved up to the mountains it's like there was all this structure around me, the trees and the rocks, and it didn't have that openness when I was out playing it like the ocean. And that that diversity was so cool. It just, um, it was a new adventure for me. It was where I learned and grew and the place where I felt the most accepted and the most loved was in nature, no matter where it was. I just felt really connected to the creatures. And really connected to the environment, the sand, the beach. What was your relationship with your parents like? My mother's side of the family, in a phrase, not good. It could have been much better had there not been a legacy of drug and alcohol and physical abuse of just about every form in that family, in her side of the family. And my biological father, my mother uh, got pregnant with me and my sister when she was you know, under 20 when she was in high school. So she had kids really young and was not ready and had to leave school as a result. That was at a time when, you know, being pregnant and in school was taboo and her parents were, her father was just, boy, brutal, brutally violent alcoholic. And so she didn't have a, re- a very good relationship with herself during her motherhood, which, of course, she couldn't have a great relationship with her kids. And it's understandable, given the information and the, the environment she grew up in. It took me a long time to get to that point to understand it. Yeah, so with my mom, it wasn't great. Um, it's always been tenuous. 
my biological father left when I was three. And um, when we were little, because my mom was so young and she had to work and she had to provide for us and leave school to do that, we used to stay with my grandmother and my grandfather on her side. And as I said, my grandfather was a violent drunk. He drank all the time. He was like that series madman. He drank from the middle of the day. He'd come home for lunch and have whiskey or whatever his drink was. He drank a fifth a day. He was an abuser to my grandmother, my mom's mom, who is who I bonded with as a mom because my mom wasn't available, emotionally available, and she wasn't available to bond with a lot of the time because she was working and she was just in pain. And uh, she left us within the care of my grandmother often during the day. And when I was three years old, my grandfather and grandmother had a physical altercation, which was not uncommon. I witnessed several when we would stay there. And uh, he would just come home from lunch and he would just get get nasty. And, um, and she'd place us and hide us in a room and tell us to be quiet. And we'd hear it going on, you know, and then she would come get us when he left. And it was, it was pretty awful to experience that at, at such a young age. I just remember the helplessness of her. I remember the look in her eyes and the, the submission to it, the hopelessness. That was, I think, the hardest thing because she was so loving and so to me and my sister. I just, she just had so much love in her. She was so, so gentle. That was my experience was this loving, gentle person that I bonded with and complete terror from my grandfather, just terror. He scared the crap out of me. And at three, um, after a fight, she died. He violently struck her and she struck part of the house and she died in the hospital of an aneurysm as a result. And uh, so at three years old, I lost her and then I lost my biological father. So I, my relationship with my parents wasn't great because of that obvious trauma, but also I shut down as a child. I was completely shut down in grief. And when you're that young, you don't know how to deal with grief. I mean, your parents would have to be so skilled to manage what my sister and I were going through. And there was very little skill at all. And, you know, not just from, I mean, my parents weren't alone in that. I think a lot of parents were not skilled at that time. There was so much accepted in society that was just not acceptable. There was just so much accepted that wasn't acceptable. We were closing doors and making up, you know, sayings like what goes on behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Um, mind your P's and Q's. Speak when you're spoken to. So children are to be seen, not heard. There were all these just very suppressing, oppressive, denying themes running through society. And they were burdening to everyone. And I think they made everyone mad on a spiritual level that they didn't know how to have the tools to understand how to unpack it, how to process it, and how to shift it. This generation of kids comes in and says, you know, some of them, and I was one of the ones where I said, no. <laughs> My relationship was very limited. I was unaccepting of where they were, and they were incapable of dealing with where I was. What effect did all of that have on you and your mental mm. health and well-being? Well, for the longest time, you know, I, I didn't really know that I had issues with my mental health. I didn't know because we lived an isolated life. I was very isolated as a kid. Um, we didn't have friends stay over. I think I can count on one hand and have room for more of the times I had friends over because one of the most common behaviors of abusive families and dysfunctional families is isolation. They don't want anybody coming over. They don't want anybody to see it. And um, so we just didn't have that experience. We just didn't have that connection with people. We couldn't, my sister and I just couldn't really develop that. We had our friends up in the mountains but we didn't develop that connection. And I think when you don't connect, you don't have connection with people, it definitely impacts your mental health and your well-being because we are, we are community creatures. We are 
in need of one another to grow, to learn, to see who we are. Our reflections are so important, right? They're so important to expand and not contract. And that to me, I mean, life is about expanding, uh, not contracting. And so I was in contraction for so long. Just give the glory to God because something inside me knew. At a, I mean, and my teachers thought I was a loon. I used to do this thing in my classroom. First of all, I sucked my fingers until I was like 11. Necessarily joy, comfort is what it was. And I could expand in a space where I felt really afraid if I could just like suck my finger. It was like this thing. And it made me feel safe. And I went through my like my whole right hand. And uh, and that's a sign of a child who's being hurt. Is Finger sucking is a child who's self-soothing. They're in trauma especially when it goes on forever. It's one, a very common sign. I hated going to school because I had to be around other people. And I felt so scared and afraid. I just did. I was used to being so isolated that it was suddenly like, what is happening here? And um, I didn't feel connected to my body. There was so much swirling around inside that it was almost like, imagine blowing air into a balloon that's shaped like a body. And you're filling it up, but there's like, a point where you run out of breath and it's like, you know that there's parts of you that aren't filled and as buoyant as they should be and feeling the way they should be. That's how I felt. I felt like I was in a capsule inside myself, which was so, such a weird feeling at such a young age. And I just, I knew it. I would get in to the classroom and I would add, my teacher allowed me to do this. She allowed me to, she put a bunch of books. I went and just collected the books and put them on my desk and I'd build like a fortress wall stacked up in sides and front so I didn't have to see anyone and I would lean in so I could suck my finger. I had some really loving teachers because I remember in first grade how they they knew how creative minded I was. And so I would whenever there was anything creative going on, I'd come out of my hiding place. But if I wasn't doing something creative or I was being asked to connect with some kind of curriculum, I struggled because I just felt like, how do I make sense of that? It was like, how am I making sense of this world? It was just so much PTSD happening in this person. And it's what it was. And pretty much people stayed away from me because I was unpredictable. They'd come up to me and talk to me and I would just snap and say, get away from me. Don't touch me. You know, don't touch me. I was very afraid of people. I didn't know how they respond. But there were some kids that I that I connected to. Thank God. I actually walked home with one once and gosh, I got in trouble for that. I just left and walked home in first grade with a friend. But I used to go out in the um in the field and I would just talk to God, lay my head on the ground and talk to God. And tell him my story, tell him my issues, tell him what I was going through. And then I would go on the high bars and do dead man's drop. It was like I was risking my own life from a young age, yes, over and over. And that was like my thing. Everybody would like, friends would come over and they would, you know, students would look at me because I would just throw myself back, flip around and land on my feet. I had like this, it was a very physical tomboy. And so I, I had this, you know, energy I needed to let loose. And that before they confined me back in that classroom, <laughs> you know, as a kid, I, I know there were, I mean, there's some intense mental issues going on, just compression, contraction. I just didn't know how. And I, I'd act out constantly just looking, you know, that's what kids do. They act out. They don't know what to do with it. And there were times when it seemed like things were normal. And there were times when my mom was, you know, she seemed like she was into being a mom. She had some amazing things. She was the most unstable, unpredictable human being I, I ever knew. And she still, in some ways is, but just not as, you know, obviously not as volatile. But she's still very unpredictable. And I think that that's a side of mental strain. So I, I connected to that at a young age or something going on. And I would go into nature and I would talk to myself. I talked to God, talked to myself. I talked to creatures and they would listen <laughs> and they would hang out with me. You know, I mean, I could, I had a connection with animals. I'd pick up snakes, I'd pick up spiders, I'd pick up you know, salamanders, I'd pick up squirrel, uh, chipmunks, and I just, oh, I just had no fear with animals. And it didn't matter what kind of a snake it was. I had a pet snake that used to sit on my head, on my ponytail. I had a fear in me of my family, but I also had a fear that I would be like my family. I had a fear that 
if that's my mom, am I going to be that way? If that's my grandma, am I going to be that way? And so the animals, the way they engage with me, the way that they connected with me and the way they accepted me and the way nature accepted me and I knew it was wild and unpredictable, it made me feel safe. It made me feel love. I felt love there. And I still do. I always feel so much love in nature. It healed my mental state. It literally, I would go through something traumatic and I would run away out into nature and I would reimagine my circumstance. The feelings would dissipate and I would start to see that I had another choice. And that was what healed me was knowing there was choice, I think. And then making it, that was a huge healer for me. And then at a young age, I, I started seeing a therapist, very young age at 14. Um, I ended up going to a private school that was for basically a land with the misfit toys. It was a school for children that had been through what I'd been through and or were parents were trying to protect them. And I had run away so many times at that point from the circumstances that I was living through. I couldn't take it when once I became a teen, it was just too much. And after one of the uh, one of the episodes of just severe violence, I took off and that was it. I wasn't coming back. I had a serious meltdown. I tried to kill myself. It was, I think, the second time at that point. The first time was when I was 13. It just was when everything else started changing in my body, it became overwhelming. It was like, are you kidding me? Now I got to deal with this shit. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got it happening from the inside. It's like... I just, you know, couldn't take it. And, and, you know, you don't have the mental capacity. And it's like, how do you deal with it? You, you have two choices when you're a teenager, suppression or expression. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's rough for an adult. So for kids and teenagers, I can only imagine like feeling so much and you don't know what to do with it. Walker, were you forced to go to that special school? So this is an interesting story. I ran away after um, being severely beaten and to the point where I was passing out and I, I likely had a concussion. I was really damaged. And, you know, and, and my, my stepdad, God rest his soul, he was a Vietnam vet and he was violent and he was unpredictable. And he was also extremely loving in his own way. He just never got to really show that side to him because he was so tortured. He was wounded. And he comes from, came from a generation that just did what they were told. They did what was done to them. And they didn't know, or maybe they just didn't know that that was their responsibility to make a different choice. Now, we don't get to get away with that. There's too many people around us that are willing to stand up and say, your choices are yours. You don't get to look back and say, well, it was done to me. So he didn't have that. And uh, he was in very deep PTSD at this time. He suddenly became, you know, my dad when I was three, right after everybody else left, right when he got back from Vietnam. And he was not prepared. So he had two people that were PTSD, my mom and him, trying to raise these two girls that were not easy by any stretch because we were both expressive and we were just raising kids in general is not easy. So I ran away and was put in a halfway house. And uh, I said, I'm not going home. I'll just run away again. And they said, well, you get to go. And I remember how they were trying to scare me. We're going to put you in a halfway house. And I was like, okay. <laughs> First of all, I have no idea what that is. Second of all, it's better than where I am. And so I, I don't care. I didn't know what it was. And the unknown for me was comfortable because the unknown always meant something better for me. It always did. It never meant something worse. So I've always been comfortable in the unknown. And so uh, what happened was uh, I spent a couple weeks in this halfway house. And of course, they don't let you stay there indefinitely. And um, they wanted to send me back. And I said, no, I refused again and said, I'm not going home. I'll just run away again. And they had conversations with my parents and uh, said, she's not coming home. She will go to a school, but she won't. I was so afraid to go back to that school because it was at the school that I almost passed out and my friend lifted my shirt and saw my back and she was like, oh my God. And that, that was humiliating. And as a kid, you just don't have this huge spectrum of emotion. You want to fit in so bad. You just don't want people to know about, you know, what you're going through. You don't want to be 
spotlighted, highlighted under the microscope. And I always felt that way anyway, because I carried such a load. And I think that's what you do when you carry a load. You think everybody's looking at you. And that's why I wanted to be alone. And so, so I refused and they found a school. So it was my parents and the sheriff in the room and uh, this lady. And uh, I wouldn't look at my parents. I remember the whole experience. I wouldn't look at them. They were sitting behind me and I'm, the sheriff and her were sitting there. I said, I won't go home. I'll just be running away. I won't go home. And then, then they agreed to the school. And I went up to this school. And it was cabins. There were boys and girls there. Most of the boys and girls were from Los Angeles and San Francisco. And they were they were from either just really rough environments, drugs. Parents were trying to save them from drug abuse, trying to get them out of a gang, um, trying to you know, change their lives. And some of them were in protective custody like I was. And it was a, um, it was a different experience. And so that in and of itself is a book. After a year, I went home. They said I had to go home and I should try to go home. And after a year, so I did, I tried to go home and it lasted about eight months. And then I ran away for good. You were emancipated at the age of 16. What was that process? How did they say that you could do that? Well, when I ran away permanently, and it, one of my friends from that school is who came and got me. But my girlfriend, Francine, drove up from Los Angeles, and she picked me up in the middle of the night. And I stayed with her for a short period of time. I immediately got a job. I think it was Taco Bell was my first job, and I was so excited to work at Taco Bell. <laughs> I was so excited. Oh my gosh. I lied about my age. I told him I was older than I was. And I got a job there. And see, in my family, we weren't allowed to eat junk food. That was something my mom did that was really good. She wouldn't allow us to eat junk food. And she fed us very well. She thought about our nutrition. That was something she just had a, a knack for. And, um, and so we weren't allowed to eat it. But I loved it. And once in a while, I you know, have something like that. And so I was like, I'm working at Taco Bell. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm working. So I was like, yeah, I got a job at Taco Bell. And then, um, and I was eating there every day and then I started getting sick. It was like, I can't take it. But uh, she introduced me to a friend of hers. He was a nice boy. His name was Steve. And um, she said, I have a friend, Steve, and I think you should meet him. Um, I think you guys will like each other and be friends. And so I met him. And we did, we became fast friends and uh, he introduced me to his family. And when he found out what my situation was, and she told him a little bit, you know, that I was living with her and, uh, and he asked his mom if I could live with them. His mom let me and they took me in and it was amazing because I couldn't stay with my friend for, for much longer. She was getting back into some crazy life behavior and I was not safe there. And so I knew, okay, I'm about to end up on the street. This is going to be really scary for me. His mom, who is the person who brought up being emancipated, when she let me move in, the one thing she said is, you have to call your parents. And I was like, hell no, I am not calling my parents. I'm not telling them. I had been gone a couple months at this point, and they had no idea where I was. And I wasn't calling my parents. Like, I'm not telling them where I am. I don't ever want to go back. The day I left, I tried to kill myself. And it was the lowest and the worst and the closest to committing suicide I'd ever gotten. And it impacted me huge. And I was not going back. But she said, you can't live here if I don't let your parents know. I'm legally obliged to tell them you have to call them. And I said, well, they're going to not be happy and they're not, they're going to do something. I know, I know my parents are going to be angry. And so she, we did, we called and then they called the police and told the police that they should come get me and I should go to juvenile hall. And so they, they took me to a halfway house, but the police couldn't take me to juvenile hall because I didn't do anything. I didn't commit any crimes. So what they did is they took me to a halfway house, which was one of the most terrifying places I'd ever been because it was, first of all, in a big city. I was the only girl there and the kids that were there. It was like walking into a room. There were three men there. They were boys, but they were like men. And I remember feeling like, you know, those cartoons where suddenly, you know, somebody walks into the character, walks into the door and they're like suddenly a smoldering chicken on a platter. They're just cooked. The wolves look at them and they just, you know, start seeing them as cooked chicken. That's how I felt because the look I got was like, I, 
I was being touched without being touched. And it just scared me. And it was, I had to go through all these different highway changes. I didn't know LA that well. And they drove me out to this place um, that was so far from where my friend lived. And, and uh, we made a commitment, my friend and I, that I would call him and he would come get me. That this was just going to be temporary as, as they were taking me away. His mom was crying. He was crying. I was crying. They were trying to talk the police out of it. They were saying she's done nothing wrong. She just called. I just called the parents. They said that they were going to think about it. Not that this would happen. Why are you? Well, she's a runaway. She's, we have to take her because she's a runaway. She's not an adult. She's a minor and her parents have authority and we have to take her. And that's where being emancipated first came into my mind is how to not the word because I didn't know it I didn't know that there was a choice but I remember thinking this sucks how do I belong to them when they don't want me how do I belong to them when they you know they just want me to be taken away how is this possible and it was just so feeling so helpless and there was that helpless feeling again that I had felt. And so my friend and I, like I said, made a commitment. He would, And I remembered all the freeway interchanges. I remembered the off-ramps. And I waited till an opportune moment. And I ran out of that house, snuck out actually, dumped my bag in a bush and found a payphone. He we had, gave me 75 cents, which was, you know, a good amount back then in the in the 80s to make a call. And even though it wasn't really long distance, it was just in the valley. So I called him and 45 minutes later, he came and got me. And uh, it was, that was it. His mom, when we got back to the house, we all hugged and she said to me, I think we should ask your parents and have the discussion about emancipation. I'll help you with it because and I said, well, I'm not calling. <laughs> I'm not calling him. I'm not doing it. She goes, not right now. Not right now. Let's let this settle. And I said, if the police come back, they're not going to get me because I'm going to run, run. This is not like the halfway house that I was in before. The one that I was in in Fresno. So yeah, that's how it happened. And then a couple of months later, she called, um, or a period later, I don't know if it was a couple of months, maybe it was several weeks later, she called and she was really upset and told my parents what happened. And as a result of them calling the police where they took me and how wrong it was and that she wanted me to live there that she wanted to care for me and that she wanted to help me be emancipated and she would be fine for them to sign over guardianship to her so that she could go through the paperwork and help me process it. And that's exactly what happened. Your childhood sounds the opposite of what you ended up doing with your life. You became a model and an actor. How did that come about? So, I had been working in LA and just, you know, jobs. And I was going to school. I was going to junior college. I was trying to, I was thinking I was going to be a psychologist. First, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I was like, okay, that's going to cost a lot of money. I don't have that money. I can't do that. I have to survive. So I had to work too. And I had to, I took care of myself at 18. I had moved out from that house and I started working and taking care of myself. And living on my own. Modeling happened as a result of a of a photographer in that neighborhood taking pictures of me. He wanted asked me to take pictures, and Shannon, he came up to me and he said, Can I take pictures of you? You should be a model. And I literally spun on him and like said an expletive and called him a pervert and said, Get away from me. I mean, I was so incredibly protective and just like volatile. I mean, that just that sounds sketchy. Anyway. Yes, exactly. <laughs> didn't it? You know, and, and I just was so, no, who would want to take a picture of me? I was like, what? I didn't grow up in that environment. I just thought, why would somebody want to take a picture of you and it be a good thing? There's something not right. And for him to say that, right? And so I told the people, you know, I told uh, the family I was living with, I don't want to bring on it and say their names, but I told them about it And they said, well, you know, he's actually, he's been in neighborhood. He actually is a professional photographer. He's a nice person. And I said, I don't care. I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. Well, he persisted. And, uh, and eventually, and they talked me into it and they said, why don't you just try it? You're pretty. Maybe it'll go somewhere. Maybe it'd be a good way to make a living. Maybe it'll open doors to something that you're meant to do. They were just really supportive. His mom was so encouraging that way. And so I said I would, as long as my friend's sister came, because <laughs> I wasn't going by myself. 
And so uh, I took pictures and then he said, I would like to bring these to my contact at a lead modeling agency. I think that this is something you're supposed to do. And so we did. And that was kind of beginning. That was how I started modeling. And it was like, wow, this is, this is a whole new world. And it became, I mean, it was Johnny Casablancas is who I met with after I had signed with them and signed a contract. And it was just different time and modeling. And there was like an energy that was so adventurous about it. Uh, but at the same time, there was this exploitive energy. Something about it made me uncomfortable inside and I didn't know what it was, but it was the idea of going to Italy, which I moved to Italy literally several months later. I was like, I signed a contract with an agency there and I was gone. I just moved to another country. I was like, this is awesome at 18. And I had no issues with that. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. My mom and, and my uh, stepdad were trying to work things out, trying to talk. We would talk every now and again. And, and my mom was, she would try, we would try to have a relationship, but it just wasn't, it just has never been able to be like a mother daughter thing consistently. There's just so much going on. And my, my mom's experience and her generation, um, they just don't want to talk about, they don't want to go through help. Like now I got this, I'm dealing with the way I'm dealing with it. And for me, that kind of energy is like exhausting even be around. So I can only take in small doses. And so that's how that happened is I ended up moving and it felt good to be that far away. It was a new adventure and I was on my own. And yeah, I just kept moving toward it. And the reason I think that that came the way it did and is because I just kept consistently making the choice to choose me and adventure and not keep looking back. Even though I was angry, yes, I was angry. Yes, I was pissed. Yes, I I was in blame. Yes, I had all the things that we do when we're young and we don't have the tools and we're just trying to figure it out. But there was one thing that I did have that saved my life and it was a willingness to move toward opportunity, a willingness to be open, to accept that the unknown was somewhere where I could actually have an impact on what that could be. I just knew it from nature. I knew that there was a playground out there I was supposed to be playing on. And it wasn't back there in my past. It was something new. The more foreign the opportunity that came at me was, it was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to try this. And that's, that's it just one thing, one led to another. And it was affirming and affirming and affirming that I'm moving in the right direction. And so I would try and heal myself while in building that success because my, my mental state was up and down. I was, I was always checking myself in to guidance and therapy. I spent over a year in the Jungian Institute in therapy with an analyst. I was always in therapy uh, for the longest time throughout my whole 20s and part of my 30s. It was just something. And if, if I wasn't in nature, I mean, if I wasn't in therapy, I was in nature, like traveling. I always went into nature and talked to the trees and talked to nature and, and just turned it over. Do you feel like the trauma of your childhood had any effect on your adulthood and how you operated? Or did the therapy kind of curb that? Um, I, th I think the therapy helped, but absolutely it did have a huge impact because I was so reactive. I was very reactive. And, and fortunately, some of my reactions moved me in the right direction. So it's just constantly asking God. I, I felt like God was my, my daddy. I felt like that God's my daddy. Okay. I would talk to God like my daddy. I didn't feel, felt like I didn't have a daddy. God was my daddy. And so I would talk to God in that way. And God always, I just always felt guidance there. I always felt that connection of, I would seek those answers from that space. And instead of, even though I was in reaction and a lot of times I was a full passenger from my childhood for sure. I think it drew me to acting because one, I would go into nature and I would imagine something new and different and discover that my imagination could release me from pain and that there was something else that I could discover there. And I could literally 
imagine a different life. And so of course acting is that is imagining and creating a character that way. And also the dark side of the business was similar to the exploitation, the abuse, the mistreatment of women, the all the ugly side of the business that we've all come to be very aware of in the last several years was familiar to me. It was very familiar to me because I had lived through that kind of, and that is what made me start feeling unsafe in that environment. So I know that both positively and negatively, the the therapy definitely helped me get answers, you know, clinical answers to what's going on. I mean, I was diagnosed with PTSD, uh, anxiety disorder. I had sleep issues. I had ADHD. I had dyslexia. I had all kinds of, I mean, I was a freaking mess. (laughs) But talking to someone is so important if you just to share with someone and have them look at you and care enough to listen and let you speak. Because we all, I, I really do believe that we all have just a very deep craving to matter, to be heard, to be understood, for someone to just let us, just to listen. And in doing that, we will often connect with the deeper part of ourselves, our own innate wisdom. We will feel relief. It's like letting the air out of a tight balloon. We'll feel the relief. We'll create some space where something new could come in. And so I had felt that enough as a young person in nature and then with therapists that I knew it was something. So I know it helped with that, but I was working and I had to provide for myself. So I had to work, which at t- which was a time when I would structure my suppression <laughs> because it was like, okay, I can't act like this. I can't just react right now. I can't. They'll they'll know I'm, you know, I've got problems. So I, I spent a lot of time hiding that way. I remember in one relationship, I was working with this graphic designer and I think it was uh, 1920. And, uh, and he was, you know, he had major issues. He was a very uh, talented man and also a total exploiter of women. But one thing he said to me when I was acting out one day, pissed me off as he, he looked at me and he goes, I'm going to tell you something that's going to probably hurt you. He goes, nobody gives a shit. I was like, whoa. I was so mad. I was like, what do you mean nobody gives a shit? And I'm telling him my story. He goes, I'm not telling you because I don't care about it. I'm not telling you because I'm trying to hurt you. But if this becomes your path that you need everyone to acknowledge what you've been through, you are not going to create success. You're just going to create pain. And I was like, oh, gosh, Shannon, I was pissed. I remember at that age, I was like, what do you mean nobody gives that So I was like, you know, my therapist cares. There's people, there's, you, why, how could nobody care? It was one of the best things I ever heard, though, because what it made me do is it wasn't, I mean, I knew people cared. I don't think he was correct. But what he was, telling me was you're spending too much time here and you've got something happening. And if you spend, and granted, he was totally dysfunctional and abusive in his own way, but he said some things like that, that were so, I just flipped them inside and made them, they were like fuel instead of getting angry and depressed about it. And then blaming him, it became something where I went, Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Nobody gives a crap that I'm going to, I'm going to get busy. I'm going to do my best to let go of this as much as I can. I'm going to be successful. I'm not going to let this drag me down. I didn't realize what it was, that it was at that point that served me. There were things that people said to me during that period that served me into making a different choice and, and towards choosing success and something that I had never seen before once again. My Jungian therapist said to me, and this was when I was, I think, 19, she said, first of all, I don't know how you're sitting here. I don't know how you're not in jail, not dead, not on drugs. She goes, I just don't understand how you're sitting here. Something you have chosen, something inside of you has driven you to the seat, and you're choosing something different. And she really helped me to keep in conscious recognition that I had a choice because I was doing it subconsciously before. And so that's what my young years were, is that I became very conscious that I had a choice at a young age. And I think 
that that was one of the biggest gifts was knowing that I had a choice and trying to discern what the best one was. Sometimes I couldn't see a better one. They weren't great choices, but trying to discern what the best one was. And I think that whenever people get stuck, they don't, re- they don't realize that their spectrum of choices is coming from back here. And they're afraid of the unknown choices, which is where possibility is, which is where all the exploration and discovery, which is life, is. Um, and, and how we really discover who we are. And that's, that's what I do now is I help people because I'm really familiar with it. And I know how that feeling is. I know that feeling in your gut. And I know the comfort that we find with the familiar, even if it's, you know, that rucksack back there that's just full of really stinky stuff. I know what it feels like to go in there instead. And I also know the terror of, of what it feels like to go into something you don't know but to do it anyway. And even I know what the little steps are. I know what the big steps are. And I also know what it's like to wake up one day and go, where, where have I been? Being, having been in a complete trance because something triggered me. And I just spent days in a PTSD trance and my whole world was being reacted to. And I was literally a passenger on that bus. I know what all that feels like. And, uh, you know, we all come through it uh, when we choose to come through it and we all need somebody. We just do. We just need to know we're not alone. That was something that was huge for me is knowing that I wasn't alone. And I got that as a kid in nature first with God second and the choosing the unknown brought me closer to consciously understanding what that was it was subconscious as a kid it was living and not existing living is the unknown you wrote a book can you tell us a little bit about the book and um, where we can find it yes I wrote a book called awaken discovering yourself through the light of your innocence and it is a memoir and it touches on some of the things that we've spoke about and goes deeper into the steps and the trips and stumbles and and the successes and what my walk was and the subtitle discovering yourself through the light of your innocence the light that i'm speaking of is that innocence of the child in us i truly believe inside my soul that no matter what we've been through there's nothing on this earth that can extinguish that light It's always there. It just gets dimmed and covered by our experiences and choices that we make as a result of our experiences. When we can get past that, even for a split second and say, when that blame voice comes up and says, I didn't have a choice. Because I didn't when I was a child, I didn't have a choice. But when that voice comes up and say, no, you didn't, you didn't have a choice, but now you do. If we could just be that loving voice to ourselves, what we do is it's like opening a little crack over something covering that light. And when that light shoots through, it's like a bolt. It's like, you know, when you see a bright, bright light coming through a crack, it's almost like it pushes all that off. It's like unleashing light inside yourself. And in that light of your innocence is where you grow so fast. It's a quantum level growth that you experience when you choose yourself. You choose that light inside yourself. You choose to love that child the way you wanted to be loved, that you weren't, the way you needed to be cared for, and use that part of you that's it's infinite. It's God in you to expand and not contract anymore. And sometimes, like I said, it's a tiny step and sometimes it's a leap and sometimes it's combinations. And I think that's what life really is. And that's what, that's what awakens about is I just, that's what was going on is I was awakening my whole experience as, as a human. I, I will always be in that state of, you know, awakening there. I still have moments where my, I'll go, I feel like, you know, a moment of mental strain, something will come up, something will trigger and I'll be like, Oh wow. But the difference is, is I can spot it happens and I see it instantly and I know how to love myself. I know how to parent myself. I know how to accept myself. I know how to say it's okay. And, um, you know, life is filled with triggers and I see them as opportunities. Now it took me 
to, to my thirties to figure that out. It was like, Oh, okay. I don't trance anymore. Thank God. <laughs> I don't go there, but I, I, um, you know, just to say this, Shannon, um, and for your audience, if you can imagine, you know, when you lock your fingers together, it fits together like a machine, you know, like a, like a watch, you know, everything fits really well together. I felt for a long time that it was like this in my mind. They were trying to find that way. And I'm, what I'm doing right now is I'm straining my fingers and they're trying to fit into each other and they do fit. They fit, but there's something that's, I'm not seeing how they fit. For a long time, that's what my mind felt like at different times in my life is it did, things didn't fit and I was trying to figure it out. And that's what awakens about is it shows that journey. There were times when I just, things just didn't fit and I just became a passenger. There were times when I just reacted. And through that experience, it has taught me to be an observant. I observe and I catch and I love. And I just, that's just been life for me. That's been this, this journey. And that's, that's what I, I, I wanted to write it. I met a beautiful woman named Lisa Nichols, who's told me, your story doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the person it can help. I thought my story was meant to just be my, what I had to carry. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. It just like went right into my heart and I thought, okay, all right, I'm going to have to be courageous and tell this story. And I was so afraid to tell it because nobody knew it. I thought my agents would think I was, oh my God, because everybody, you know, I had this persona of being so together. <laughs> you know, I created this success. Like you said, I created something so different. People were like, you know, I thought they're just going to think I'm a loon. How am I going to share these moments where I was just, I would just leave the building and I'm in the building. I mean, it happened in auditions. It happened and they didn't know, but there were things that triggered me in auditions and I would just, I was gone. And I would not even know how I got home. I was in such trauma from it. It was like, it was bizarre. And it was, you know, I was in recovery. I was in process. I was you know, suffering from mental health issues and I was providing for myself. You do what you do. So that's why I wrote it to help somebody and let people know you are not alone. You are not alone and you can create success. Where can we find that? You can find it on Amazon. Um, I am about to do the Audible version, and I'm very excited oh, about that's it. That's cool. Yeah, I'm very excited. I get to tell it and speak it, which is it's very exciting. And uh, right now, it's um, available on Kindle, and uh, you can purchase it, and it's really reasonable. It was an international number one bestseller when it was released. I was very excited about that. Working on working on a new one. <laughs> that's so amazing. Walker, you've said so many things that just have gotten my wheels turning, just like resonating in my head. And um, I'm so glad that you agreed to be a guest. Thank you for spending some time with me and having a conversation with me today. Thank you so much, Shannon. I have to tell you, you are such a beautiful listener. Oh, thank you. I mean, you just it's such a gift to, to listen and you have great energy and you just, I can feel your kindness and your, your interest. So thank you. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. Enjoy what you heard today? Help us get the word out. Give You Talk a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You might find your review reposted on our social media. Thanks for listening. The mic drops next. For most people, the unknown is scary, but the life Walker knew was so unpredictable that she actually embraced the unknown. It had to be better than the abuse, instability, isolation, and grief she dealt with at such a young age. When she talked about what she was like in school, it reminded me of some of the students that I've had in the past. I'm almost certain that I've had a little Walker in my 14 years of teaching, but as educators, we sometimes feel helpless when it comes to the things our kids deal with at home. I wonder if her teachers felt the same way. Even in all of the trauma, 
Walker seemed to be pretty intuitive at a young age. She could discern that her mom had her own issues and that there had to be something better out there, which led her to finally stand up and say, no, I'm not going back to that house, and to gain her emancipation from her family. She was determined to leave all the family issues behind, so much that she moved to Italy at the age of 18 to pursue a modeling career. But I think the things that she didn't get from her family, she ended up getting along the way from the people she met on her journey to becoming who she is today. I think that we all do if we're open to growth and accepting the fact that people need people to help them grow. I would venture to say that Walker even learned and grew from the people who introduced her to the trauma. Besides therapy, the one thing that has always brought her back to stable mental health state is a unique relationship with animals and nature. I think we all have to find our thing, and nature is it for her. But the most powerful thing I heard her say was, your story doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the person it can help. Everyone has a story to tell. Sharing your testimony can be a blessing to other people. In a couple of weeks, I'll be chatting with Neha, a self-proclaimed mompreneur, about the mental health struggles that trying to re-enter the workforce after leaving to raise children has on many moms. I truly appreciate each and every one of you out there listening, and I hope you'll share and tune in again. Grace and blessings. Blessings.